Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hey, Lisa, welcome to February. Well, thank you, Melissa. I'm happy to see the year inching along towards spring. I know. I really hate winter. I'm super excited to see a new month tick by. Well, I I like every season, but I'm always ready for it to kind of begin moving to the next one. And spring here where I live is really beautiful because uh, we live in an area where it's lots of rolling hills of wheat fields. So it's really beautiful when all the wheat starts coming up. And yeah, I like it. But right now we're still covered with snow. So well, I have a question for you. When you were a child, you went to school, correct? You went to, did you go to public school? I did go to public school. Okay, me too. And, you know, we all loved recess. What did you like to do during recess out on the playground? So it's weird. Again, we'll go back to the fact that I'm a future thinker. I have very few playground memories. I remember in elementary school hanging out on the parallel bars, like not the way that they're really supposed to be used like they do in gymnastics, but like hanging upside down on them and trying to copy things that my more coordinated friends could do. Like I was always the one, I was never the one inventing anything or showing anything off. I was always the kid trying to keep up. And I can tell you for sure, it was never the monkey bars. I definitely loved hanging by my feet, not my arms. I've zero upper body strength. Uh, And then in middle school, it was more oddly enough, pretend play, which is so weird because I'm not a pretend play mom, but I must've done a lot. That's really interesting. I think when I was a child, my biggest memories of recess are playing Foursquare. We loved Foursquare, probably because it rained so much where I live that you know, I grew up near Seattle. And so the Foursquare area and the basketball hoops were under a covered area. But we played a lot of Foursquare. And then I loved the swings. And I remember wanting a swing set so badly in our backyard when my sister and I were little. But we never, never had one. Um, but our neighbors had one. And so we would go swing at their house too. But I really loved swinging, you know, back and forth and back and forth. I think I used to love swinging, but I remember like in high school being able to do less and less of it because I get so motion sick. And now I can't even sit still on a, like I can't even sit on a swing that's not swinging. Just that little tiny bit of instability in the motion still makes me queasy. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today's interview is really interesting in light of this conversation. Yeah, we are really excited to welcome back Robin Goebel to the podcast. She lives in Austin where she's a licensed clinical social worker and her practice focuses exclusively on families of children who experienced a history of toxic stress and complex trauma. She was here earlier um, in episode six, talking about how to talk to our kids about hard and scary things. And over the summer, I went to one of her webinars and she talked about this idea of using sensory-based activities to help regulate our kids. It was fantastic. So I invited her to come and share just a broad overview of some of that information here on the podcast because I feel like I want people to hear about it all the time. I'm, I'm always talking to families and thinking, oh, they need to go to that workshop. Um, so with the next best thing, um, Robin has something exciting that really, that happened just recently. She has recently accepted a position as adjunct faculty in the Interpersonal Neurobiology Certificate Program at Portland Community College. So I know she'll be fantastic at that. She is such a smart person, knows so much about the brain, but has this amazing gift to talk about it in layman's terms in ways that are really kind to us parents who are trying to live this out. And so I'm just really excited to bring you this interview. Well, I really enjoyed listening to it, and I know our listeners are going to love it too. Let's hear from Robin. Well, welcome back, Robin, to the Adoption Connection podcast. Yes, thanks for having me back. I'm excited. Yeah, I attended a webinar that you hosted last summer, and I think it was called Regulating Through Sensory-Based Activities or something of the sort. And I loved it because it was thoroughly planted in 
all the things that I love, brain science, neurobiology, yeah, yeah, me too, <laughs> but yes. it had a, a really practical side uh-huh. that parents and caregivers could really start using right away. And some of the stuff they probably already were doing, but could be just yep. tweaked a little bit to be really intentional. Ever since I took that webinar with you, I literally talk about it all the time with me. Because one of the biggest challenges that families have are regulation issues with their kids, I mean, and themselves. But I wanted to have you back on so they could hear it from you, from someone who is way more qualified to speak about it than I am. And just so we could have a go-to resource that I could refer people to. So it's a little bit selfish on my part. But I also know that the material and the content is fantastic and needs to be more available. So. Thank you. You know, that is such a goal of mine, right? Is to just make content as accessible to people as possible. Not only like that you can go and get this online instead of attending some online workshops for States Away, but also in language that's accessible. So I'm glad to hear it feels like I'm accomplishing some of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the lang- I think the languaging part is huge because I know that you can speak in all of the neurobiology terms, but I've also heard you break it down into things that, and illustrations that make a lot of sense to me. So that's good. <laughs> um, so actually with that, can you mm-hmm. just explain a little bit about brain development and which part of the brain controls emotions for our listeners who don't have letters behind their name and, and years of brain science. <laughs> you bet. I can make that very simple and very easy to understand and practical. So for our purposes, it is helpful to think about the brain developing from the bottom up. And that's an important thing to remember. And also that there's kind of three major parts of the brain. Now the brain is of course one big organ that we couldn't possibly siphon out this way, but it's a helpful metaphor to think about. Um, so the, like the downstairs of the brain, the most, the, the lo- absolute lowest part of the brain is it, like physically is sits at the very bottom of the brain at the very top of the spinal cord and is the part of the brain that's developed the first. So it's, um, you know, for people who want some brain language, it's the brainstem. It developed first means that for the most part, healthy full-term infants are born with this part of their brain functioning completely. And then like in the first couple months, it sort of finishes up. But this part of the brain is developed, is, is responsible for all the things we don't ever think about heart rate, respiration, um, waste, kidneys, blood sugar stabilization, like all these things that our brain is constantly doing, but we aren't giving any conscious attention to, and they're, they're keeping us alive, right? In the world. It's kind of like the foundation of the house. Is that kind of right? Absolutely. And I think of it like that in a very specific metaphor that it's, it's about, it's that important, right? Like if we have a shaky foundation, it doesn't matter how beautiful the structure is that we build on top of it. It's going to fall down. And the same is true here about the brainstem. Like it is so important that the brainstem be as healthy and strong as we can possibly make it because everything else that gets built on top of it is at risk of like metaphorically falling down if the brainstem's not strong and doing the thing it needs to do. In typical development, we're not talking at all yet about like trauma or the impact of trauma on the brain, that's fully functioning at birth. Then the next part of the brain, so we could talk about like the first floor of a house, the next part of the brain that's above the brainstem is our um, limbic centers of the brain. Some, a, a lot of people are familiar with the word amygdala. That's part of the limbic centers of the brain. It's, this is our emotion center of the brain. Emotion, attachment, connection, relationship. A lot of people will call this kind of the mammalian part of the brain. It's the mammal part of the brain. So we can think about how like dogs and cats are different relational experiences than lizards, right? Like lizard isn't super interested in snuggling. Yeah. <laughs> not, I was really not concerned with relationship at all. Lizards are concerned with staying alive. Dogs and cats and humans are mammals too. You know, like we're concerned with staying alive as well, but we also are really concerned with relationship and connection. So that's that second part of the brain. You can think of it again, like kind of the, the first floor. The next part of the brain is the thinking brain. 
And so the part of our brain that, that you and I are really using right now to have these conversations and you to think about questions and me to think about the answers. But obviously the other parts of my brain are working very well too, because I'm sitting up straight in my chair and I'm like speaking in a coherent kind of regulated way. Like all of that aren't things I'm thinking about. They're just happening. In this moment, my whole brain is, you know, regulated and working together. A part of the brainstem and limbic brain that I didn't mention yet, but become important for our later conversation, the brainstem is, is responsible for all those autonomic things, including energy modulation and arousal. That is like how much energy I start using when I'm exercising is different than the energy that I'm using to sit here. But I don't sit there and consciously go like, I need more energy to go for this run, right? Like, like my brainstem is responsible for modulating the energy that my body needs to get the things done that it, that it needs to do. The limbic part of the brain, so again, that part that sits right on top, kind of the first floor, that's important for our continued conversation is my limbic part of the brain is always wondering um, if I'm safe or not. Mm-hmm. So it's like always asking this question, safe, not safe, safe, not safe, safe, not safe. And if it falls on not safe for whatever reason, it sends a message to the brainstem, not to the cortex, not to the thinking part of the brain. It sends a message lower in the brain to the energy part of the brain that says, you need to be ready for fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. And the brainstem generates all that energy, like fighting energy or running away energy or all of the energy that helps us take care of ourselves. And it does that without using the cortex, the thinking part of the brain. So unfortunate sometimes. Okay. (laughs) Well, it is unfortunate, except it's not, right? Because if we're really in danger, you know, if I'm on the road and I'm about to get hit by a bus... I don't want to ponder my options, right? <laughs> what the safest thing to do is, right? Like, oh, should I speed up? Should I slow down? Should I change lanes? Like, what's the best thing to do that's going to keep me alive, right? Like, it's too slow. The cortex is too slow. It's not going to. It's not going to save your life. Whereas the brainstem can take all of that data in and make a decision without using the slow thinking part of the brain. And then, and now you get to stay alive. It's yeah. unfortunate, except it's not. We really need it to operate that way. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> so talk about what a child or person looks like who maybe had early childhood trauma, stress, you know, ongoing chronic stress early in life. And so maybe that strong foundation didn't get as strong as we would like it to be. What does that kind of look like practically? So without really going too much into it, because I think your listeners can get this information somewhere else if they want to, let's just say like early complex trauma, chronic stress, lots of experiences of not feeling okay, negatively impact both the brainstem and the limbic parts of the brain. And so two things are happening. One, the, the, that first floor limbic part of the brain that's always asking the question, safe, not safe, safe, not safe, safe, not safe. It's falling on the answer, not safe, a lot more often than it needs to. It's assessing experiences and situations oftentimes really inaccurately. The other thing that's happening is that the brain has learned that it needs to be ready for protection, ready for fight, flight. It needs all this energy all the time. The whole idea of like safe, not safe, that's just an on and off switch. It's like the lights are on or the lights are off, one or the other, safe, not safe. But then once the lights are on, like once we determine it's not safe, there's a dimmer switch, right? So you can either have a little bit going, a little bit of fight, flight, freeze, or you can have a ton Mm -hmm. of fight, flight, freeze. And so early chronic stress, complex trauma, really breaks the dimmer switch. And so there's no, um, a little bit of fight, flight, freeze energy. (laughs) That's what's going on and figure out like, how much of this do I really need? It's just greatly inaccurate. And so these things that feel like super small stressors, maybe it's like a small stressor to the point where we don't even know what the stressor was because it was so small, are causing enormous 
reactions of intense fight flight freeze energy. Right. So that explains what I hear a lot, which is my child, you know, kind of flips his lid. He rages over like stuff that kind of feels dumb. Like right. it doesn't make sense. Right. Like it's certainly not life threatening, you know? So people are like, you're, you're trying to tell me this is like a life or death reaction they're having, but what's happening is not life threatening. And I'm like, well, yes, that's because. Right. The brain is either assessing it inaccurately or the dimmer switch is broken or both. And so, and you talked about those parts of the brain developing early on in childhood. So does that also explain, I also hear sometimes families will say like, well, my child is really bright. Like there's nothing wrong with his brain. You know, he's doing really well at math. He loves to read. He can do all of these things, but then there's this like disconnect to how he handles Right. something emotionally. There's a disconnect between maybe academic age and emotional age. And sometimes our kids are so bright cognitively and academically that our expectations of how they handle themselves, you know, are a little bit different. So can you speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. And so, and so you're right. Sometimes they're, you know, bright, but also when they're regulated, when they're not assessing stress or threat in the environment, they can spew off all of their coping skills, right? They can tell you, yeah, that was irrational. Or I'll talk to kids about like, did the size of the problem match the, your reaction? And they'll be like, um, no. <laughs> you know, reflect on, not all kids can do this, but some kids can reflect on it and, and talk about their coping skills and really they know what to do. But because that dimmer switch is broken, and because we want our brains not to use the cortex, we want our brains not to be thinking when we think we're in that much danger, they cannot access any of those really great thoughts or coping skills or, or things that they know, self-reflective capacities that are stored in that second floor of the brain. Because the first floor of the brain, right, has decided it's just too dangerous. We cannot allow there to be thinking involved. Um, we have to go right to the basement of the brain and let it, that handle it. Yeah, which is really frustrating because you want to tell your really smart <laughs> kid, like, you know better, you know not to hit, you know this thing, or you, even in the moment when it's going on, like you're trying to negotiate or debate or say the same thing. Gentle hands, you know, like all the, you know, like, like our kids don't know, but it's really just a completely different part of their brain that's causing a reaction. So the part of the brain that knows, you know, I shouldn't yell at a teacher or throw a chair across the room isn't really the part that's driving the action. Exactly. So what do we, what do we do about that, Robin? Well, Let me solve that problem right here for you. (laughs) So there's two major things we want to be thinking about doing. One is in the moment, you know, when you've got a dysregulated kid, you've got a kid who's operating out of a very low part of their brain. What can you do in that moment to help get their whole brain back online? And then what, but what about outside those moments? What can we do to really strengthen the foundation of the brain so that the tiniest little stressor doesn't cause the house to fall down. Tiniest little stressor can be kind of absorbed and we can use all of those coping skills that are located higher in the brain. If the house falls down, we can't use anything that's located on the floor. And we do those things outside the moment. So not in stressful, major, intense situations, we still have to be thinking about being very deliberate about strengthening that lowest part of the brain. So yeah, de- definitely. And I think it's it's our tendency, right, in the moment to try to fix it and correct it. I don't know, maybe you're a lecturer like me. I don't know. But um, so what are the things that we can be doing to make that foundation a lot stronger outside of the moment? Because I do feel like those are the most teachable moments if we're really honest with ourselves. Well, yeah, for sure. And that's, even though sometimes it feels like my house, the house is always on fire. (laughs) Like I need buckets to put this fire out that, that there, we've got to be able to find a place to step back from that and look at all of the outside the moment stuff, or we're just, all we're doing is going to keep like regularly put out fires instead of kind of prevent them from escalating to that point in the first place. 
So I agree. Like starting on what, what can we do outside the moment is really the most important place to focus. So for brainstem work, for strengthening the lowest parts of the brain, we're turning to the work of Dr. Bruce Perry. He is the one who has really taken research and academic material and translated it into clinic, the clinical realm. Like what do we actually do with what we understand both weakens and then strengthens the brainstem. So Dr. Perry is, he speaks, he travels. You might get lucky enough to like hear him talk one day. He wrote the book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Yeah. So that's a great place for people to go. You know, if this is sparking interest in you, that's the first place I would say, like go, you know, go check out that book. Um, but the, So the brainstem is, is formed and developed appropriately inside an environment that we would call rhythmic, repetitive, relational, and somatosensory. So I'm going to break those words down. Rhythmic means that there is like a beat to it, right? Like it's the difference between classical music and maybe like more jazz improv kind of music that doesn't have a very metered beat to it. It can ebb and flow and it changes and the the rhythm and the metronome is changing really frequently. Mm-hmm. So metered, metronomed, rhythmic experiences are what the brainstem needs to develop appropriately. Yeah. And that's really predictable too, because it doesn't yes. change. Right. Because it's not changing. Right. That's inherent. You're absolutely right in the rhythmic piece. And I, after I define these words, I'll go back and talk about, so what does that even mean in real life? So rhythmic repetitive means that it's happening. Um, it happens over and over and over again, which is sort of inherent in a rhythmic experience, right? Like it's June, 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 June. It's just kind of, you know, happening back and forth, back and forth. The other part of repetitive is it means that it's happening a lot. We have to look at making our kids' entire lives rich with these types of experiences, which is why, so as the therapist, I spend a lot of time with families because I just get this kid one hour a week. I need this kid's life to be rich with these experiences their whole week, not just the hour. Like I need it to be as repetitive as possible, happening as often as possible. Rhythmic, we did repetitive. Relational means we can't pull rhythmic and repetitive out apart from experiences that happen inside relationship. That we can give kids all the rhythmic, repetitive experiences possible, but if they're not happening inside a safe, connected, attuned relationship, it's also not doing the work to change the brain that we want it to. Right. So it's like, it's just like we would not take a baby and like put it on its own rocking chair for weeks on end. Like we right. do the rocking for, or, you know, my tendency, which is like, go outside and jump on the trampoline. Like yes. more effective if we do it together is what you're telling me. Yes, it is. Now that doesn't mean you don't ever get to say, go outside and jump on the trampoline. Right. That, like that there's, we have, we have, we're operating in the real world. <laughs> But yes, if we really want to harness like the, what we're trying to do with these experiences, that they have to happen inside a regulated relationship. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, that regulated part, yeah. Yeah, that's important too. Only invite your child to jump with you on the trampoline if you're all together. <laughs> or if you regulated. This, if you know about you, that getting on the trampoline will also help you regulate. Because for the most part, it's true, right? So even if you're not super regulated in the exact moment and the idea is, let's go jump on the trampoline together. Like, don't back away from that just because you're not super regulated yet. Because likely getting on the trampoline, because it's rhythmic and repetitive, and then our last word, somatosensory, is actually going to help your brain regulate too. Win-win. Yes. And then you can help regulate your child because you're more regulated. Trampolines are usually fun too, which is, I think, a piece of the relational part. You know, it doesn't yeah. own our word, but right. fun and delight and enjoyment are crucial aspects of this too. So if it's something that you're like, I hate that, that's not a good, <laughs> not a good choice. And then somatosensory just means it's using the senses. It's using the body. Almost everything we do uses the body. So we don't need to get super hung up on that. Like, what does that weird word mean? It just means like we're engaging our senses and we're engaging our body. 
we're, we're moving our body or we're using it in some way. And all of the, that doesn't mean like we're going out and playing baseball using our body, right? Like our sensory environment comes in just through what we see or through what we smell or through what we hear. So there's lots of ways we can engage the body that aren't, for example, jumping on the trampoline. So that is a wonderful option. So those words again were rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory. And if you think about it, tiny babies, like they're a whole, when they're being cared for appropriately, their whole world is marinating in those experiences, right? They're being, uh-huh. they're being rocked. They're being swaddled. They're like babies in utero before they're born are getting extremely rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory experiences in utero just because of their, just their mama walking is getting this like rhythmic, repetitive, relational experience inside the heartbeat and how their, you know, their brainstem is, is developing based on the regulation of the mama's brainstem, i.e. heartbeat, respiration, right? Like all of these things are rhythmic, repetitive, relational somatosensory. Yeah. And I find, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I know with our, one of our kids, he regulates all right, but he still struggles a little bit. And what I've noticed is consequently, or, or maybe because of, I'm not sure, like when we do some of these rhythmic things, like if he needs to be more coordinated or use cross-body coordination, or if he needs to like, you know, breathe in and breathe out, but also do something with his hands, like raise them up when he breathes in and put them down when he breathes out or whatever. Like he can't do that to save his life. Yeah. So is there a connection between like, like our physical coordination, our ability to find rhythm in something and like our regulation, our emotional regulation? Yes. Yeah. They all work together, right? Like if my body is struggling with with just the rhythms of life, right? Or my body, I'm not connected and I'm not as connected to my body as I should be, quote unquote, should be based on like the developmental continuum. Mm-hmm. Kids past a certain age should be able to cross the midline without any difficulty. They should be able to put complex motor movements together, like riding a bike, for example, or like all the complex pieces that come into those experiences, the brain is primed and ready for all of that on a certain developmental continuum. So it's, yes. So I'll see kids with with like behavior or emotional dysregulation challenges that have like body-based challenges. They are struggling to tie their shoes or ride their bikes or jump with two feet or skip. I often see huge um, correlations there because we're talking about brainstem pieces. Yeah, that's so interesting. No, as I was gonna say, so we can har- well, so we just we harness the body to help these things, right? So instead of focusing on um, you have to calm down or I need to teach you these coping skills, we do things that are frankly inherently more fun to kids, which is we help their body get more coordinated, we help their body get stronger, we help them be more connected to their body, more engaged with their body by using their body. And doing things that kids are inherently interested in, which is the kids are very kinesthetic. They like to touch. They like to feel. They they use their body and their senses to learn about the world in a way that we as grownups don't because we already did. What are some of those practical ways? And do you need all four of those things, the relational, repetitive, rhythmic, and somatosensory? I mean, I know they're kind of more inherent than we might even think about them, but what does that look like, I guess? in real life you besides bet. So, jumping on the trampoline. <laughs> yeah, that, which is really wonder, a wonderful example because it is all of those things. But, but like the simplest thing for me is um, sitting on the ground and like rolling a ball back and forth to each other, right? So, or toss or, or standing and catching it, right? That we've got rhythmic because we're going to work to create a rhythm there. Like as humans, we're going to naturally fall into this back and forth rhythm. Otherwise playing catch is really hard because you don't know when the ball's coming at you. (laughs) And so you might be doing that for other purposes, but in general, human beings fall into this rhythmic way of being. So we're rolling this ball back and forth on the ground or we're playing catch outside. It's obviously repetitive because it's it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But also I like to remind people the repetitive means it's happening a lot. 
Right. So like just five minutes tomorrow playing catch in your driveway isn't going to solve all your problems. No, (laughs) and it has to be kind of rhythmic, repetitive in and of itself, right? Like it has to be like, it has to be every day. It has to happen on a pattern. It has to happen frequency. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting, right? Because toddlers inherently want to do the same stinking thing every blessed day. Yes. They're practicing. They are learning, they are, they are regulating their bodies and practicing and learning about their body and, and feeling in control of their body. Most of the kids I work with don't feel in control of their body. They often don't even know that they don't feel in control of their body, but feeling not in control of your body is an exceptionally dysregulating way to be in the world. And it's just kind of happening chronically. They just don't know anything different. Nope. No. Um, And it's just, it's alarming to the brain to not be, you know, developmentally appropriate, aware, like aware of where your body is in space and what it's doing and the sensory data that's coming in. Yeah. So we have things like jumping on the trampoline, catch back and forth with lots of different things, balls, balloons, rolling. Balloons. I love balloons. Everything that kids do is rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory, riding bicycles, swimming, going for a walk, you know, things that look maybe a little bit more like chores, like raking leaves, shoveling snow, you know, playing hacky sack, playing, you know, ping pong, playing, you know, like if we think about little kids, developmentally on target, young kids, what do they just do when they're allowed to just do whatever they want? Mm -hmm. And we want to do those things with our older kids. Yeah. Or my favorite dance parties. Yes. Dancing. Um, oh, I love to use like go noodle. Um, first, you know, some kids aren't going to be interested in that, but go noodle is this really is a online thing. You can like make your own avatar and then you, they, they have like dance breaks and you mimic, you know, you dance along with the character on the screen and almost like the dancing is rhythmic, repetitive, relational som- somatosensory. Yeah. Moves that the people are doing that you go along with. Oh, I'll have to, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I've never heard of that. So what else is important for parents to keep in mind when they're starting to integrate these things? And you said something that I have done wrong in the past, which is, you know, keep it fun. You can't, you know, forcing these activities is going to be counterproductive. That's absolutely true. So if your kid, like, if you're like, oh, I'll, pick my kid up from the school and we'll stay at the playground and do swings, swinging, rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory, playground equipment, all this, you know, inherently all this monkey bars, right? Um, but if your kid hates monkey bars or your kid hates the trampoline, then there's absolutely no purpose at all. Like we want to trust their bodies, that their bodies know what will work for them. Mm-hmm that we absolutely don't want to force something and then certainly make it not fun because now it's inherently not relational. If somebody's not having fun, it's not relational. So we do want to be very cautious about not getting overly rigid, which is that's a, like, that's a risk factor that I have, you know, that I'm like, Oh, it's supposed to look like this. So we're going to do this. And now I'm like, Oh, this is not even fun because. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes we're so desperate. Yeah, yeah, we're so desperate for our kids to regulate, to get out of this, you know, kind of pattern that we're in. We want to break the pattern so badly. And then, you know, we have these ideas in our mind, like, oh, it needs to be rhythmic. It needs to, da, da, da. and, you know, we get all kind of like anxiety ridden and about it, about it. So, yeah. So we, as always, and you've heard me talk before, you know, like the bottom line of everything is we have to stay very aware of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bummer. <laughs> I know. Bummer. Yeah. No, but we, we're huge fans of that at the Adoption Connection here. We talk about it a lot because again, I think I fully underestimated the trickle down effect of that for our situation. Yeah. So that's normal. Yeah. Well, because your brain is dysregulated too. Yeah. When yeah. We're all human, right? We just want the other, we just want to start controlling. We want, yeah. Like that's just normal. So from a practical standpoint, I'd say, look, like, look at your day to day life. And look at where are you missing your child using their body, you know, and we're especially at risk of this now, I think, as we had, you know, into 2019 is like kids are more stationary than usual or than they, than they have been in the past. Um, Some of that's because they're stationary at school. They're sitting in a desk. Um, They're, you know, kids are losing recess time, which is like the thing I will, you know, 
die about, you know, on a hill about is. Yeah. Well, I'll die with you. So. Recess. <laughs> if you want to get, get into lobbying together, uh, I'll, be your, I know, I'll like, be your new best friend. <laughs> we, ha- we have to move more, not less. And there's some good studies that are getting very clear that are showing this. But really take a look at your schedule and being like, can I get to school? You know, if I have a younger kid, can I get him to school 10 minutes early so that, and get out of the car, park, get out of the car, you know, do 10 minutes on the swings and then send him into school. You know, when I pick him up, can I, again, park, immediately go to the playground or go to the park or immediately come home and do trampoline time or riding bikes around the block together before we ever think about using the cortical parts of our brain, like to do homework or chores, or frankly, even like be respectful or, or <laughs> I mean, really like, I know, especially cause they've been sitting too much at school. I mean, just imagine if you came out, like when we were kids, if we had come out of school to a mom with a high protein snack, a drink and an invitation to go spend 10 minutes on the playground, like, right. holy cow. Woo-hoo! Right. I mean, so there's all the rhythmic repetitive relational stuff, but there's also like, oh, you see me, you know, I'm a kid and I really need these things and they're not just luxuries. Like there's so much attachment goodness that goes in that offering as well. Right. Like, like I know what you need because I know what kids need and kids need to move their bodies and they need a snack and they need a smile and they need to be seen with delight as opposed to we have to get our homework done. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it's even true for older kids, you know, because these, I mean, that's the crazy thing about brain development, right? Is it doesn't just magically catch up. We have, we do have to be intentional about these things. You know, our kids aren't going to just hit 18 and then like magically start being more regulated, you know, like they just grow up into adults that need more and more help and it's harder and harder to kind of go back to that foundation. At least that's been our experience. Yep. But these things, the moving are, you know, we can get our older kids to do some of these things. You know, even I was just talking to another mom about just shooting hoops in the driveway with a teenage boy, you know? Yeah. And then if you can be deliberate with extracurriculars, like um, again, swimming is a brilliant way to get all this in martial arts, gymnastics, horseback riding, exceptionally rhythmic, repetitive, relational, somatosensory, like, like movement-based extracurriculars are a great way of one to give yourself a break Two, your kids still getting the relational aspect because they're with peers or they're with a coach or, you know, or whatever. Um, and, and is that really helpful, especially for kids who struggle with attachment? Maybe they're on the reactive attachment spectrum, like, mm-hmm. and sometimes we as parents do not always feel like the safe adult to them. So mm-hmm. it might be better for everyone to get a break, go do it, pawn yeah. it off to a third party. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I, I absolutely believe that. Okay. As awesome. long as parents are still looking for opportunities to seek those experiences in. Yeah. I mean, that's one of why, that's one of the reasons why therapy works because in some ways therapy gives kids the opportunity to practice connection and practice relationship before they have to use it like in their real world with their more like intimate, vulnerable relationships. Yeah. Where the stakes aren't as high. Exactly. You know, so the same is true here, you know, like see if you can get a coach involved or even the next door neighbor or some of it really is just about prioritizing or valuing these experiences, you know, because it's really easy as parents to be like, well, we've got homework to do. We have to, we've got church to do. We've got chores. Like we've got all these things to do. And so we just don't, we don't have time for these extracurriculars or we don't have time for the 45 minutes after school that are shooting hoops. And I get that. What I challenge people to look at is like, first of all, how much time are you going to save if your kid was more regulated? Because everything would stop being a huge fight. Hmm. And recognizing these things as a need that like extracurriculars or having fun or being playful or shooting hoops, they're not privileges or extras. They're like actual things that our brain needs and kids with complex trauma missed, they they missed it. Yeah. They're foundational. Yeah. They like should be as important or more important than all the other things. Yes, absolutely. I think that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all the things with us. And (laughs) I just, again, I think it's so practical. It makes so much sense. And when 
matches with brain science. Like if you had just told me, I need, you know, you need to go play more with your kids. I probably would have, you know, shrugged it off. But when you can match it with the brain science of how the brain is developed and how it's affecting, like you said, the every day to day, why things are always a fight. It, it really makes a world of difference. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. pleasure. Mine too. No, really, truly it is. I'm happy to Happy to chat with you whenever, wherever, always. I'm going to take you up on that, Robin. (laughs) I I really mean it, right? Like my goal in life is how can we make this as accessible to people as possible? And so, and we do that by working together. I love this interview with Robin because for one thing, she explains things so well, you know, it's just, she, she has a gift for that, I think. But also, I think she's very encouraging about the things we can do in our lives. We're not talking about complicated, uh, arduous, expensive things, which I think so many of us feel overwhelmed by. We're talking about simple things that um, we can engage our kids in that will actually help heal their brains and help them learn better regulation and just have the capacity to regulate. Yeah, I, we've talked about this before about how we struggle with playfulness sometimes. Like it doesn't come naturally to our stressed out, you know, overtired brains. And I love how this brings a little bit of structure to playtime, which I feel like I really need as a parent. It gives me some like this step-by-step of how to play. And I know I get the satisfaction of knowing that the things that I'm engaging with are also really healthy for my child's brain working towards a goal which we all want which is better regulation not just for our kids but for us and so I think her point that when we engage in these things the relational part of it it has a double effect of regulating not just our kids but ourselves yes yeah we had a conversation earlier about jumping on the trampoline and the benefit of that and even sometimes if I'm not jumping the whole time, if I just even sit on the trampoline while my son is jumping and jumping, we're still going up and down together, you know, and um, he loves it because he loves to show off all his tricks. Yeah, and and you're present in that moment with him. Right, right. It's relational. So yeah, I just thought it was a great interview. And, you know, this is the first interview in a two-part series with Robin. So next week, we get to hear even more from her. Yeah, I think the question that might be kind of rolling around in everyone's mind is, okay, these are great things that we can intentionally weave into our lives. And the intention of them is to, again, help increase regulation, decrease the amount of times that our kids are dysregulated. But I know some of you out there are thinking, okay, but what about when they actually do get dysregulated? Like, what about in the moment? Then what? And so Robin and I continued our conversation and recorded an entire second interview on just that question. I think you guys are going to love it. So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and come back next week. We'll air that. If you're also thinking she had so many good things to say, and I just don't think I can remember those R words. Uh, They were (laughs) repetitive, relational, rhythmic, and then the S, somatosensory. If you're a visual girl like me and you want to be able to read those words or just have a visual reminder, you can head to the show notes. There we also have where you can connect to Robin. She is Gobel Counseling on Facebook or gobelcounseling.wordpress.com. Gobel is G-O-B-B-E-L. At the show notes, you can also grab a quick download from Robin where she gives us some examples of some of the activities that we talked about, as well as a list of behaviors that may indicate your child's level of arousal, which I find super, super helpful. So to grab all of those great resources, as well as a link to Robin's last episode with us, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash 25. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. Today's question is, How can I feel okay with fostering a child I don't feel I can adopt but still want to foster so the child in question can become stable enough to move on at the right time? How do I reconcile that in my head and in my heart? 
This is a great question. And I think that we undervalue families who are willing to be exactly this role. And Jamie Finn talked a little bit about it in her episode, but not every family can say that they don't want to adopt. And I think there's a beautifulness in being able to hold that space where we want exactly what's best for the child, whether, you know, even if that's for them to move on. And so I don't know, Lisa, you've fostered and recently had a child move on. So what, what's your perspective on that? Well, I do think it's a very special role to have to um, foster without necessarily having the goal of adopting. I mean, of course, in the foster care world, we talk a lot about permanence and we do want permanence for every child. That doesn't necessarily mean that you or me as the foster family is that permanent um, option because, you know, as we know, we start out with trying to uh, reunify children with their families of origin, their parents. And then when that, if that fails, and then we move on to extended family. And, you know, so it is a very long process. If a child comes to you who's not already free for adoption, so I think there is something beautiful about being able to say, I will foster this child without necessarily the intention to adopt, which was our situation. You know, when we were asked to foster our teen foster daughter, we had no plans to adopt. And I made that really clear at the very beginning. And, you know, as it turned out, I mean, had she needed us to adopt her, we would have really sought God about that, but that wasn't the case with her. She had a, has a very loving extended family. And, um, you know, she was close enough. She, we, she was with us two and a half years and then turned 18. So adoption is not always what we are needed to do. I also think that there's some, it sounds like our, our listener who sent this in feels a little guilty about it. Does it sound like that to you, Melissa? Yeah. And I can feel that because we've had kids in our home that haven't stayed forever. Right. And, and I think that we don't all have the same role in a child's life, but we all have the, poss- the, the option, the possibility of stepping into a child's world and loving them and bringing security and bringing stability and helping them begin to heal from the traumas of their life before they move on to either their adoptive family or back home to their family of origin. So I, I don't think there should be any guilt involved because I think it is a terrible mistake to adopt when you do not feel clearly that that is what you are supposed to do. And you, and if you're married, your partner, you know, you both have to be fully, fully sure that you are meant to adopt this child. Because if you're not, it's not the best thing for that child or for you or your marriage or the rest of your kids. So I I think there should be a lot of freedom for us as foster parents to know or to say, you know, I want to step into this child's life for a time and prepare them for whatever's coming next. And I think that's wonderful. And I I hope that helps um, our listener because I understand about reconciling your head and your heart I think we have to go all in and love these kids as, as if they're going to be with us forever. We have to love without reservation, but always knowing that it's okay to hold them with open hands and know that God does have a plan for their life. And you're not necessarily the permanent plan. You are the plan for now, for today. Yeah. And I think we talk a lot about this in coaching and in our Facebook group and about just defining, being really clear about what success is. And I think I thought for a long time that success was a child never having to leave my home (laughs) until they were like launching into adulthood. And I don't believe that anymore. I think it's fantastic when our kids can come and settle in and, and accept and experience that permanence that you talked about, Lisa. But some of our kids are really fragile and they've come through really hard times. And some of us bring older kids, you know, we brought a young adult into our home and that just looks different. And, you know, success is not always what I think we originally think. And success needs to be, you know, looking at a much bigger picture 
being really mindful about everyone who's involved. And so I think that plays a part into, you know, if you're a foster parent, that role that you have, if you have a placement that you, who you don't keep forever, um, you know, for whatever reason that is. And I would also say that, you know, these seasons that come and go, one of the things that we can do sometimes is continue to play a role in a child's life, even if they transition out of our home or even into out of home treatment for a season. But like for our, you know, example, we had a young adult who eventually ended up incarcerated. And it's very easy to think about that as a failure, but we still have, you know, continued to maintain contact. We gave him a taste of stability that he had never had in, you know, 20 years before he came to us. And so again, I think we just have to be really intentional about thinking about what success is, um, what true success is. And I think for people of faith, um, sometimes the greatest success, whether it appears to be successful to people watching or not, is simply obedience to God. You know, if God calls us to care for a child for a time and we say yes, and we do our best, Whatever the outcome is, that's not always, that's often not in our hands, the outcome. But I think we can rest in um, the knowledge that we've done what God asked us to do. And that's a very beautiful thing. Absolutely. So if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, there are two ways you can do that. You can send a message to email at theadoptionconnection.com. Or our favorite way to hear from you is for you to ask your question um, at our listener hotline, which is 208-741-3880. And that line is not monitored. It doesn't ring anywhere. No one will pick up. It's just a way for you guys to communicate to us. And there's something really powerful about hearing your question um, for our listeners in your invoice. So we encourage you to use that option um, if you feel comfortable doing that. If you need more personalized help, we do offer private coaching. You can start off with a complimentary session. For more info on that, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.